Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. My name is Jonathan Pryke. This year, the Development Policy Centre surveyed 356 stakeholders in the Australian Aid Program. The survey asked them what they thought about the Australian Aid Program, what they liked, what they didn't like, and what needed to be done to improve our aid. And now the results are in. This podcast is a recording of the presentation Stephen House, lead author of the report and director of the Development Policy Centre, delivered at the report's launch as well as a discussion from Mel Dunn from the IDC and Mark Purcell from ACFID. You can access Stephen's PowerPoint presentation and the full report from our website, devpolicy.anu.edu.au. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Stephanie Kappas-Campbell and I'm seeing a number of very familiar faces in the audience. And I think many of you might... um, remember me, maybe not recognise me because my hair has grown a bit since I've seen a number of you, um, but you might remember me with many years with Ozod, including most recently with Ozod, Papua New Guinea. Um, I've since resigned from, um, I guess well now we can call it Ozod, um, DFAT, and I now work for a chap named Harold Mitchell um, out of Melbourne. Harold, amongst other things, is a philanthropist and we very proudly fund the Development Policy Centre. So I'm here today in that capacity, wearing my hat as the Executive Director of the Harold Mitchell Foundation. And I'd like to, in that capacity, welcome everyone today. We've been absolutely delighted to work with Stephen and his team. And this first aid survey is, uh, survey on aid effectiveness is a good example of why. One of the reasons Harold wanted to fund the Development Policy Centre was because in terms of transparency of the aid program, he saw the importance of independence and it has, I believe, been an extremely valuable role that Stephen has played and this exercise just reaffirms that in terms of having an independent look at the aid program, at aid effectiveness um, and aid policy. And I certainly believe that now more than ever that's required and what we have gleaned from this particular exercise will be absolutely critical in looking at how the aid program moves forward in a very uncertain time that is full of risk but also many, many opportunities. So with that, we'll kick off the show. We'll have our three speakers and then we'll open the floor for questions. If I could also, in being remiss with all my papers here, acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. And with that, if I could introduce Professor Stephen Howes, who will be known to all of you, although if not, let me quickly say, as most of you would be aware, prior to joining the Crawford School, Stephen was <coughs> economist for the then AusAid. He's also had an extensive career in development, working with the World Bank in Washington and India, and was also on the Ghana Review on Climate Change, as well as involved in many other endeavours on international development. So with that, Stephen, welcome. All right. Thank you very much, uh, Stephanie. And uh, let me begin by uh, acknowledging the support we get from the Howard Mitchell Foundation, uh, without which uh, it wouldn't be possible uh, to do this kind of research. And uh, let me also thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, I think we've had 29 events this year. This is our last one. And I know we're getting into Christmas. 
Um, but it's uh, fitting, I think this is the last one, because this has been one of our major research projects for the year. So it's good that we can share the results with you uh, before the year uh, is out. So we uh, undertook a survey uh, around uh, June, July, August, and uh, we release, we're releasing uh, the results today. And what I'm going to do in this presentation is uh, take you through uh, the main results. Um, I think I've, I've got about 40 minutes uh, to do that. I'm going to go fairly fast, and I'm going to stand over here so that I can also see the PowerPoint, and that will help me uh, walk you through. Uh, I also uh, and I want to acknowledge Jonathan, Jonathan Pryke, who's my co-author on this, and also many other uh, colleagues at the Centre and from around the university, uh, and collaborators uh, among the, uh, who you'll be hearing from later on. You know, we did this as a joint effort uh, with different stakeholders and uh, got a lot of support from a lot of people. So thank you to everyone who's been involved in this. I'll give you some background before I go on to the main results and then uh, finish off with the implications. Uh, of this. Uh, why did we do this? Why did we decide to do a uh, stakeholder survey? I guess I've been you know, working in aid for a long time and now I lecture on aid. One of the hardest questions is, does aid work? And I think we all know that despite the sort of commendable passion to, to measure results, uh, it's very hard to determine aid effectiveness. So there's so many different sorts of projects in different sectors, in different country, long time lags. Uh, very hard to get a handle on it, and so you know, perhaps time to think of some new approaches. And one approach uh, is to ask the experts, <coughs> ask the experts what they think about whether aid is working. And you know, I guess my views on this were reinforced when I was part of the 2011 aid review, and I realised then just how you know, really, that's what we were doing. Right? The submissions that we got were very important, the meetings we had were very important. Right? We were relying a lot on uh, the views of experts, and for a lot of areas, uh, not just in aid, you, know, you can't do without informed judgment. And what we're trying to do, in a way, is sort of systematize and do on a more regular basis what these uh, infrequent, once a decade, uh, aid reviews do. I guess the other motivating factor we have is we have a sense there's a kind of insider-outsider divide. You know, the aid program is not run by the government. AusAid or DFAT is like a foundation, really. They're giving out funds, either competitively or, or through grants to hundreds of organizations, thousands of individuals. And through these complex partnerships, uh, the aid program is, uh, is operated. Right? So there are thousands of insiders, but they, they know very well at least how their part of the aid program is going. They've got views more broadly on the aid program, but we very rarely hear from them. Right? They don't have the incentive to speak out. Uh, they don't to speak out. On the other hand, often the outsiders uh, are very uninformed. So we want to give the uh, insiders voice. And uh, you know, while we were sometimes criticising the survey, this was a survey of best of interests. You know, our slogan has been, you know, we should heed the views of those we asked to deliver the aid program. We've got Australian government trusts, NGOs, contractors, multilaterals with billions of dollars. So surely we should be interested in what they have to say about the health of the aid program. Uh, finally, you know, we didn't uh, set out to do this knowing that Aussie was about to be abolished, <laughs> but we do feel. You know, we're not suffering from a crisis of relevance. You know, we do feel <laughs> these results will be useful at this time of, uh, of fundamental change. Of course, this is not the first uh, stakeholder perception survey. They've become quite common, uh, often funded by aid under the rubric of social accountability. Right? And there are you know, citizen report cards in many countries now of uh, public services. So this is our report card on the aid program. 
right? There are fewer um, reception surveys of aid programs. There are some of multilaterals because there's an organization, the Multilateral Performance Assessment Network, that regularly assesses multilateral performance. And one of the tools, in fact, the main tool they use is a stakeholder survey. There are far fewer bilateral uh, surveys. And we found one for the UK, uh, one for the US. And so it's unusual in that regard. And I think this one is also unique because it has a strong focus on aid effectiveness. And it's this focus which I'll, I'll explain in a minute. So what did we ask about? Of course, we wanted to get basic information from our respondents about themselves. As I said, we had a focus on Australian aid, which I'll expand on in a minute. We also asked them about the objectives of aid, what they think they are and what they should be. We asked them what they think about the sectoral and geographic focus, modes of delivery, how aid is delivered, what aid volumes are likely going to be and what they should be. And then it, we also asked them not just these big uh, picture questions about the overall aid program, but we asked them what they thought about the particular part of the aid program they were uh, involved in. We wanted to get that ground level perspective as well. So I said that aid effectiveness was a particular focus, and we uh, pursued that focus by uh, having a list of questions about what we call a challenge or in the survey we call them attributes, uh, to use a neutral term. And these are things that are important if your aid is going to be effectively given, and some of which are needed to, to get public support. Obviously, without public support, you're not going to be able to maintain a healthy aid program. Now, where did these come from? Well, we took them from the uh, 2011 review. And uh, we tried to pick out sort of those issues which the review had identified as being important for the A program. We thought that was a good, as good a source as any, an informed source. I was involved in the review, so I guess I was partial with that idea. And um, the idea was, well, two years down the road, you know, what progress, uh, how are we going on those issues? Uh, there are 17 of them, and, and we'll go through them later, but in broad terms, you can think of them in four groups. Uh, there's one group of which is about enhancing the performance feedback loop of aid, and uh, if you've ever heard me talk about aid, I'll often say that is the kind of Achilles heel, right? That the performance, there's not much feedback, and if there is, it's not acted on. So fixing this is not just about getting information, good m &E, but also about acting on that information, having systems and incentives to act on that information, so not being too risk-averse. Um, being realistic uh, is required. Then the second one is managing the knowledge burden. Aid agencies have a massive knowledge burden because they work across countries, across sectors. If you're going to be effective, you have to manage that well, and that requires expert staff, staff in place for a long time, and also working through partnerships, right? not doing everything yourself. Uh, limiting discretion is a third group. There's a tendency always for aid agencies to do uh, too much because there are so many good things you could do, and that results in you being ineffective. So you need mechanisms, strategic clarity, funding, predictability, uh, to limit discretion, and then the final one is building political support, and that requires political leadership, which of course is needed for all of these, as well as uh, community engagement. So just keep those issues in mind, because we'll come back to them, and we ask them both at the macro level, either at the A program or Aussie, depending on the sort of issue, but also at the individual uh, activity level. Okay, who did we uh, survey, and how did we uh, get them to participate? Well, we did it in two, two phases. In phase one, we drew up a sampling frame for the uh, major NGOs and a sample of the smaller NGOs and for the major developing con development contractors who work with uh, the aid program. And we targeted their senior management, uh, normally <coughs> two uh, or one from each of those. And uh, we had a pretty good response rate. So we ended up uh, with about 100 in phase one. 
Uh, second phase, which uh, overlapped and started later, you know, for multilaterals, academics, consultants, government officials, you know, we didn't have the means to drop a sampling frame. Right? We, just, we weren't well enough resourced to do that, so we just asked the individuals to participate, right? to, to self-select in. And uh, we had a very good response, and we had some uh, 250 individuals who uh, filled out the survey. It was all, it was all online. Uh, so, of course, the uh, results relating to the first group, the NGOs and the contractors, are going to be more reliable. Right? Whenever you've got a sampling frame, you're going to get more representative results. Uh, but, you know, we still felt that the responses from the self-selected group were very valuable. We wanted to uh, report them. And the fact that you know, a lot of issues are quite common, you know, with the, with the phase one, suggests to us that, you know, these were not just disgruntled individuals, right, who were venting their fury or frustration. It was more representative than that. But it's up to you in the end. If you're a purist, you know, you can just focus on the phase one results. If you're uh, more open-minded, you can also, you'll be interested to know what others think. Uh, and in any case, in our results, we focus on those points that are in common. So in the end, it doesn't really matter uh, which group you focus on. Uh, so these are, this was our sample size, the 356 uh, that we had participating in the survey, uh, 250 in the second phase and 100 in the first phase. You can see in the second phase, we've got a wide representation from different groups. Not many from developing country governments. Uh, that's one point, one limitation to bear in mind. And certainly if we do it again, we'll try to increase uh, that number. But otherwise, a diverse group. So who were the respondents? Uh, a good gender balance, uh, middle age in general. Uh, but you know, these are people with experience. Right? They, they, they think they've got strong or very strong knowledge of the aid program and working for at least five years. I think about half have been working for 10 years or more in international development. So 80% were directly themselves engaged with the Australian Air Program with some activity. Three quarters lived in Australia. Uh, the self-selected group at phase two, you know, slightly younger, less experienced, right? Because remember, in phase one, we're targeting uh, CEOs and, uh, and senior executives. All right, and then finally, just by way of introduction, I'll just go over a typical question so you get an idea of the sort of the way we present the results. Not all the results, but most of the results are presented using this five-point scale. So a typical question, for example, is Australian aid effective? Uh, we had five answers. So a very negative answer, in this case very ineffective, a negative answer, a neutral answer, a positive answer, effective, and then a, a very positive answer, very effective. And so we can put that in a bar graph and we can show the proportion of people who responded. And you can see on this question, you know, the overwhelming majority or the large majority give a response of effective for the aid program. And then we can get this average, or we call the overall score. If we give the uh, uh, scale of one to five, right, the most negative answers are one, the next one are two, the neutral ones are three, uh, and so on up to five, we can get an average score, right, which is a way to summarize the, uh, the views. And in this case, it's uh, 3.7, and you can think of three as like a pass. Right? So if you get above three, it's a bare pass. Below three, you fail. All right, so NGOs, you know, overall they think Australian aid is effective. Then this is the other, the contractor executives. And then this is the self-selected group. And then among the different self-selected, the way we break it up, because we do show, and you can see a lot of detail if you look at all the tables, we break it up into academics, then the NGOs who self-selected in, Australian government officials, multilateral and developing country government officials, uh, the phase two contract developing contractor employees plus individual consultants. Uh, and then that's everyone. So this is an example where everyone's got pretty similar views across groups, but I'm just giving it to you so you can see a lot of the graphs are of this kind of, uh, kind of nature. All right, so now let's go on and actually see what are the results. And you know, it is, there are lots of interesting things in this data set. 
but I'm going to try and summarize it under about six uh, main headings. Uh, so first, more about uh, the nature of the responses. Uh, you know, you, you can't just uh, purely accept you know, what someone says at face value. You have to look a little bit deeper. And one of the things we found is that uh, you know, it is true, in this case, that uh, where you stand depends on where you sit. And uh, we asked people, so this is the one you've already seen. Right? This is about the aid program as a whole, how effective it was. And so the average response was at 3.5. But when we asked respondents about their own activity and how effective that was, right, that goes up to 4.9. <laughs> so everyone thinks they're doing a really good job. And if only you know, everyone's getting their act together, we have a good aid program. So this is not surprising. Right? This is self-reporting bias. What's called the Lake Wobegong effect. Right? So, you know, you have to be a little bit careful when you uh, get these kind of results, but, you know, what we're looking for are results that hold across different perspectives and different levels. And we did find that when we asked about those 17, we took six of those aid attributes and asked at both the program level and the activity level, and you can see the results were, they were higher generally for the activity than for the aid program. But uh, the difference wasn't that big, and the kind of the ranking was the same. So the same overall message observed. And, and one point I want to make is you know, we're not looking here for small differences, like you know, 2.5 or 2.4. There are lots of small differences and lots of statistically significant differences. What we're looking for are overall messages uh, that appear, that emerge from this data, taking into account the different perspectives and the different, the different groups. Second uh, finding that we can report is that there's some disagreement between different groups, within groups, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of agreement. I guess that's the, the good news from the survey. So here's an example where there's actually disagreement. Right? We asked respondents how, what they thought about the use of Australian aid technical assistance right, to fund advisors. Always a controversial subject. And if you ask the NGOs, NGO executives, right, most of them think too much of our aid is going on advisors. But if you ask the contractor companies, right, they think it's pretty good. In fact, it could be increased. And the self-selected group, not surprisingly, they're in the middle because they're a mix of all different groups. And you know, you can't really draw any overall conclusion. Right? You can't get a sense of the aid community on this issue because there are clear, uh, there are clear divides. And there are other examples. Like the clearest one is when we asked people on modalities. Right? Did they think that we should, government should spend more money through NGOs or through contractors or multilaterals? Of course, if you ask NGOs, they think you should use NGOs. If you ask contractors, they think more use should be made of contractors. If you ask multilaterals, why don't you use us, right? So there are some areas where you're not going to, there are clear divides. And there are other areas where there are divisions within a group, right? Uh, so we asked people about um, aid to Africa, right? Another issue which has been discussed a fair bit. And if we ask NGOs, well, actually, most of them do have a view that it's, it should be increased. But uh, among contractors, there, uh, there's no clear view. And among the self-selected group. Right? We, and here, it's not just divisions across groups, but within groups. Right? So if everything was like this, we'd have really have nothing to report. Right? But fortunately, it's not like this. Right? And there are a large number of issues where you can get a clear sense of a common view. And just to illustrate that, these are the 17 issues I told you about, that we asked about. And uh, they're ranked here from best to worst based on the views of all stakeholders together. Right? So if you take everyone's view and you average it, the 
biggest strength of the A program is transparency. The biggest weakness is staff continuity. And now if you go through different groups, uh, this, is, this is them on the NGO executives thing. And you can see okay, there are some differences, but it's more or less the same pattern. These are contractors. Right? See, there are some interesting differences. NGOs are much more worried about predictability funding. Right? Contractors get contracts. So once they have a contract, they have predictability funding. But then they're more worried about micromanagement. Right? Once you get a contract, you're more likely to be managed more closely. And this is then the um, self-selected group. And uh, we, can, we can go on. There are some interesting uh, differences. This one of the Australian government officials. And not surprisingly, they're much more confident about staff expertise right, as a strength <laughs> rather than, than a weakness. Uh, those are, these are multilaterals and developing country governments. They're much more positive about the political leadership of the aid program, which everyone else sees as a problem. So I guess political leadership is more a domestic issue for the aid rather than an international representation uh, issue. Uh, so there are differences, but if you do a correlation, you know, it's in excess of 80% on average across uh, different stakeholder groups. Uh, you know, they're not identical views, but I think it's fair to say there is more that unites than divides various aid stakeholders. And that's what we focus on in the, uh, in the results I'm going to present now. What are those common views? That's what we try to tease out. Well, the first of these common views, and the, the third finding overall, you know, start off on a positive note, Australian aid is good and improving. Of course, uh, you know, we're asking people who are involved in the aid program, so you'd be worried if they said it wasn't good. But uh, nevertheless, it's a uh, reasonably positive kind of verdict. Uh, this one you've already shown you. This is the view on their own activity. This is on the aid program as a whole. We asked people what they thought about Australian aid relative to the average OECD donor. And you can see that we're sort of better, but not by a long way. Right? So we're sort of a, a long way. We don't really see ourselves as world class. Yet. Um, but we are improving. I think that was, that's a positive finding. We asked people if, to compare aid effectiveness over the last decade. We think we're improving. And most people think that the impact of the scale up is actually been good for aid effectiveness right? rather, than, rather than bad. And it's not just at this general level. We can also dig deeper down and find specific features that um, we like about the aid program. And so we asked people about these whether we thought we, the aid program had the right priorities. And uh, here are just three answers, right? Too much weight, and the right weight, too little weight. And we look at the sectors, health, you know, people think we've got it right, because that's the middle one, right? the right weight. Humanitarian disaster response, education. Governance, we're more divided on. Economic development's interesting, because in fact, we see a lot of people sympathetic to the new government's position that we should be doing more in this area. Uh, and that was a view across stakeholder groups. That was an NGO view as well as a uh, development uh, contractor view. We also asked them about geographic focus. So there's disagreement you've seen earlier about Africa, but that's a small part of the program. Uh, you know, most people support the focus of the aid program on the Asia Pacific, and uh, some want to see it increased. Again, sympathetic to the uh, new government's position. As well as all these um, you know, tick-the-box type questions, we also gave space in the survey for open-ended comments, and we asked people you know, what they liked about the aid program, and here's just a sample of the sort of responses we got. Uh, people thinking the increase in funding has had a positive impact, uh, effectiveness has greatly increased, implementation is lagging, it's getting better, aid program has improved, it's improving year by year, there's still a long way to go though. And that's probably a good segue into the next part. Well, not why I put it there, but it, it is kind of the next big finding then is that there's an unfinished aid reform agenda. Right? This was the 
Second big finding came through in terms of uh, what people thought about the aid program. We asked about you know, what is now the previous government's aid strategy of 2011, what people thought about how the strategy was designed, and then what they thought about its implementation. So in terms of its design or appropriateness, we said, uh, it got a pretty good score at right? 3.7. Most people had a positive response on that. When we asked about the implementation of the strategy, right, much more, much closer to the three, right, just 3.2. So there's a feeling that the government put in place a good reform agenda, uh, but didn't, didn't follow through. And that message really came through loud and clear once we come to analyze those 17 aid challenges. And that's what the next few slides are going to do. You really get this message that improvement is needed across the board. So I'll start off by, remember those 17 and divide into four categories? And uh, so these are average responses uh, across stakeholder groups. There are error bars which give you some idea of the range uh, of individual attributes. And you, know, you can go to the table. I'm happy to talk about different groups, but I am trying to bring out findings that do hold across all groups. So we're going to focus on, on all respondents. Um, but the interesting thing for all these four, you know, we can't, we're giving them a fail. It's a fail mark, right? We're not seeing the high marks in the high threes, right? We're seeing average marks in the low, in the low twos. Knowledge burden comes out as the worst, but none of them get an average mark of, of three. And in fact, the average for all of them is uh, is two point seven. And as I said, this is according to all the. This is the average at two point seven. If we break it down by different stakeholder groups. Right, we don't see a lot of difference. We see multilateral developing country government more positive. Right? But even there, it's just 3.1 on average. Right? That's hardly a kind of ringing endorsement. Right? So a fairly widespread dissatisfaction on the, the aid effectiveness front. If we break it down within the uh, four categories, right? so starting with the one that uh, did the best, which was uh, limiting discretion. So strategic clarity seen as a relative strength. But predictability of funding is uh, seen as not doing as well, and selectivity is uh, seen in a in a worse light. See, for these uh, two, you know, fifty percent of stakeholders see it as a, as a weakness. Um, the performance feedback loop—that's got eight of the attributes because, it's, as I said, it's not just about monitoring evaluation; it's also about systems and incentives to respond to the feedback you get to close the loop. Uh, transparency is actually seen as the biggest strength, but even that's just 3.4. And then focus on results, aid performance management, strong monitoring, all around 3. And then evaluation, 2.7. Realism expectations, 2.7. Attitude risk, 2.6. And then quick decision making, it falls right down uh, to 2. Building public support, that was the third one. And there are just two attributes, communication and community engagement. And then political leadership. And they both... Uh, score well under three. And then the final one, said so the one that we did weakest on overall was that knowledge burden. Uh, you need to have good use of partnerships to, um, you know, so you can specialize. And that gets a bare pass, but staff expertise was seen as uh, fairly poor. Avoidance of micromanagement, fairly poor. And then staff continuity uh, is uh, really in a category of its own down the bottom. So if we take the 17 together, uh, this is how they uh, stack up. Uh, just a few that are above the pass, and uh, quite a few below. Another way to look at it is uh, which ones are seen by the majority as a strength or a weakness. And there are just two at the top end where more than 50% see it as a strength. That's transparency, strategic clarity. There are about seven down the bottom end where 
uh, more than 50% see it as a, uh, as a weakness. And I just want to focus on these uh, bottom two uh, for a minute because they do stand out. If you look at uh, staff continuity, this light blue line, so that's more than 50%, see, not just as a weakness, but a great weakness. Right? That's very unusual, right? very different to all the others. So staff continuity stands out, and so does this uh, quick decision making, or its lack, uh, across all the stakeholder groups. Uh, more than half said it was a, a weakness, and that was also unusual. So just a bit more on those, we also asked people a supplementary question how they perceive staff turnover in AusAid, as it then was, and you can see 80% uh, see it as high, or very high. We then asked them about their own activity, right? and we said, how, if you have a manager in, the aid, in AusAid, how long has that manager been in place? And you can see that half said that manager's been in place for less than a year. And then we asked them, has the manager been in place long enough to be effective? And a third said the manager hasn't been in place long enough to be effective. And what's interesting, if you look at those who say the manager's been there less for a year, about half say the manager's not there long enough to be effective. Once it's more than a year, it's only 10%. Right? So that's the issue with this rapid rotation of staff, that you're just the, I guess the government's not able to as effectively manage this uh, large aid program. Uh, it was also an issue that came up in the open-ended comments, you know, unprompted. When we asked people about weaknesses, they often wrote about staff turnover, and you can see uh, some of the comments there. And of course, uh, it is an issue that's been raised uh, for a long time with the Australian Aid Program. Uh, right back since 1986 is the first reference I found. It was also highlighted by the, uh, the Independent Aid Review. Of course, AusAid has been putting in place measures to tackle this problem. Uh, but perhaps has been, those measures have been offset by that rapid staff increase. Right? Having new staff come in inevitably means uh, more staff uh, movement. Um, so that's the first issue, and I guess it was a, we all know it's a problem, but it was a surprise to see it kind of stand out so much. Uh, the other one was this one of decision-making delays. This was also a surprise because I think you know, Australian aid has a reputation for being pragmatic, flexible. You know, unlike the World Bank or the ADB, that seems very slow, bureaucratic. So why was this uh, decision-making, you know, suddenly, why did that come up as such a, a concern? Well, this is one of the questions we asked at both the um, program-wide and the individual activity level. And you can see that while there's a more positive view at the individual activity level, you know, still more than half of uh, people involved with an A program said that, you know, slow decision-making was a problem. So it's not just a kind of reputation issue, it's something uh, people are experiencing. And again, it was a kind of, kind of issue that um, people wrote about right, when they had the chance to make open-ended comments. Right? Uh, a lot of talk, a lot of documentation, a lot of excessive managerialism led to paralysis and decision-making. So one possibility is that with the scale-up, there has been more risk aversion and uh, perhaps uh, higher transaction costs uh, dealing with odds aid. Um, so we asked about uh, transaction costs and um, both the level and whether they were changing. Most people said the transaction costs were medium, right? but then a lot more said higher than low. And I get most, the majority did say that uh, transaction costs were, were on the increase. So I think it is uh, possible that with the scale-up, we have seen this kind of emerging as a, as a new problem. And then it's also probably the case that the last few years, those cuts relative to earlier plans, right, have led to uh, delays uh, in making decisions. All right, so that's really our findings on effectiveness. 
And uh, the final area that we looked at was this issue of objectives, right? What really are the objectives that drives the Australian aid program? So a very hard issue to get at, and it is interesting to see what, what the experts think. So we asked everyone to uh, give, to say how important these three objectives are. The commercial objective, strategic objective, and then the objective of poverty reduction. And the metric we used was give them weights and make them add up to 100. So, right? The bigger, the more important it is, the higher the weight. And uh, this is one where there was a lot of similarity across groups, and it was surprising that every group said gave, on average, gave poverty reduction a weight of less than 50%. So it's not seen as the main driver. Right? Uh, just about as, as important as poverty reduction is uh, strategic interest, and then the rest is made up by the commercial objectives. So if we take the national interest as being strategic interest, commercial interest right, combined, then the perception is that the national interest is more important than poverty reduction. Now, I don't know if you can verify that, but it's a very interesting uh, perception. And then we ask people, well, what, what should the weights be? Right? This is what they are. What should they be right, if you were running the program? So this is, the, this is what they are. Um, now, what should they be? So what we found was that there was difference Differences between groups, but every group wanted poverty reduction to be more than half, right? to be the main objective, and then for the strategic interest to uh, kind of make a bit of room, and likewise the commercial uh, interest. So uh, I guess the perception is that uh, if people are realistic, they don't think very few said it should just be about poverty reduction, but they do want to see uh, poverty reduction as a more central goal, uh, I guess. So those are the uh, main results. And to summarize, the way we summarize it, we see the stakeholders, the sense of the stakeholders is that aid, our aid program is good, but very improvable. Uh, it's good in improving, but there's an unfinished aid reform agenda. There are weaknesses across all four sets of aid challenges. Only two of the 17 challenges are seen as strengths, whereas seven are seen as weaknesses. Two in particular do stand out, which is the high staff turnover and the slow decision making. And then this finding about the uh, national interests already seem to be given a uh, significant weight, more weight than poverty reduction and more weight than, it's, than it deserves. Alright, so I could end my presentation here, but uh, because this is, you know, at this stage this is our summary of the results, but of course, uh, you know, I can't resist or we can't resist, the whole reason we did this was to kind of feed into the policy debate and so it is interesting, what are the implications of this, right? What should we do uh, with these results? So I think the first point, you know, is that you know, we... The first message is that the Labour, and before that the earlier coalition government under Howard and Down, did put in place a good reform agenda, but they didn't follow through, right? There are lots of unfinished... There's a lot of unfinished business uh, in terms of uh, aid reform. Uh, we have to be realistic. The current time is one of risk for the aid programme. Uh, you know, the gains have had, sorry, let me just deal with the risk for a minute. The gains that have been made, like strategic clarity, <coughs> transparency, they could easily be lost in the current environment under a new department and uh, without a good strategic uh, framework. You know, there has been this reform momentum, more aid, better aid. If there's not going to be more aid, you may not get uh, better aid. And uh, not just the uh, reorganisation, the combination of budget cuts, staff cuts, we can imagine that worsening what are already weaknesses, the uh, delays in decision-making and um, the rapid staff turnover. So we have to be realistic, but we should also be positive and also see the time as a new opportunity for a new start. 
for a more pragmatic attitude, the government has a commitment to deregulation, which might uh, suit our findings uh, well. There's a ministerial commitment to aid effectiveness, and there's a support for greater emphasis on economic development, which um, stakeholders seem to support. So what I take away as the most important message from the survey is the need to redouble efforts on aid reform uh, in general. And you know, you might say, well, you did say that, but I do think it is what emerges from the, the survey as against uh, realigning the aid program in the national interest, right? which I know is one of the government's objectives, but it's already done. Right? I mean, I'm sure they could do it a bit more, but we hope they wouldn't go much further. Uh, you know, we, the aid pro I think stakeholders are right. The aid program does already take good account of the national interest. So I don't see that as a priority. Uh, the geographical and sectoral orientation, reorientation program, that's not really such a big challenge either. We're doing pretty well on that front. Uh, it's not just an issue of corporate reform. I mean, staff turnover, the decision-making time, that is an issue of corporate reform, but you know, it's a broader issue. The, the problems are symptomatic of uh, things like lack of funding certainty, uh, not enough selectivity, not enough strategic clarity. So you know, what we need uh, is a broad-based reform program. So those are some of the implications that uh, I draw out, but I'd, uh, of course, welcome other thoughts. Let me just now finish just two more minutes with a couple of remarks. I want to underline this point. There's more that unites, that unites than divides us. And I think often, you know, we operate in uh, kind of like tribes, the NGO tribe and the contractor tribe and the multilateral tribe and the, maybe academics, we, we don't have a tribe. But um, <laughs> we need to do more to come together, right? Because we do have a lot, we have a lot in common. And we need to do more to make our voice heard. And to illustrate this point, I want to show you the very last graph I'm going to do, because I haven't told you yet what we found about aid volumes, right? We did ask about people what they, what should happen to aid volume and what, what will happen. And uh, this simplifies the range of responses, but, you know, this is a group, a community, obviously they're sympathetic to aid, right? They want aid to increase, uh, they want it to increase by more than inflation. Right? That's what they think should happen. Uh, what do they think Labour would do? Well, few people, you don't, can't see it here, but few people thought Labour would hit 0.5, but they did think that aid would increase in real terms if Labour was returned. Remember, this survey was done before the election. But under the coalition, most people thought that aid wouldn't increase by more than inflation. Right? And that turned out to be right, right, because the coalition announced they're just going to increase aid by inflation. So there was a clear sense in the aid community that the two parties had different positions on this fundamental issue of aid volume, but aid was never made a policy issue. Right? Labour never released an aid policy, and the uh, coalition just announced those aid cuts two days uh, before the election. So I think uh, we need to do more to make aid uh, a policy issue. Uh, we have to make our voice heard. Uh, the, government, the new government's very keen on benchmarks for the aid program, and uh, that's a good idea, but I think this survey provides a very good benchmark. The benchmark shouldn't only be about roads built or kids going to school, because we know that's easy to gain and of, of some, but not total value. We also need to look at those processes that go into making effective aid, and I think this survey is one source of uh, data. I do think it would be very interesting and useful to do it again, because all we've done now really is get a benchmark, right, a baseline. Not a baseline, and if we do it again, we can we'll be able to track uh, progress on these issues. Uh, but that's for the future. At the moment, we're uh, still digesting this survey. We have released our report, but we will be updating it based on your comments 
so please uh, today and uh, do get in touch with us. And um, as well as thanking you all, let me just uh, close by thanking the uh, 356 people, some of whom I'm sure in this room, who took the time to uh, do the survey and so made this analysis possible. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen, and congratulations to your team as well, who obviously put a lot of effort into a fantastic result, and I do hope we'll see a second survey in two years' time. I couldn't help reflecting as you were speaking about the implementation of the reform agenda and remembering the days where many of us in this room worked on the white paper for aid, including you, Stephen, um, and all excited about the um, outcome of that, and then there was an election. And then again, many of us were working on the review for aid effectiveness. Um, we had an outcome, and then there was an election. So I think there's something in this short-term political cycle and how we develop a more bipartisan approach that will see us through these elections in the committed approach to reform. I think that's part of the answer to ensuring good implementation. If I can now invite Mark Purcell to come forward. Mark is the Executive Director of the Australian Council for International Development and will be speaking on behalf of the NGO community. Thanks very much, Stephanie, and good evening, everybody. I'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, the traditional owners of the land that we're meeting on, their elders past and present, and begin by congratulating Stephen and Jonathan for an excellent uh, benchmark survey, which, uh, as I'll explain, I think uh, will go forward and prosper and gives lots of useful information in coming years. Uh, I'm going to be fairly brief and pick up on a couple of themes around strategic clarity, transparency, the tensions between poverty reduction and strate strategic in commercial interests, uh, staff turnover and communication engagement. But I'm also going to just end up uh, looking at another survey or review that's just come out and just touch on a few points. It's a review of um, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and their capability review by the Public Service Commission, uh, which was finished in June but we think has just been released. And uh, it, it actually has some interesting synergies with uh, the findings from this important review. Um, a comment about NGOs. I mean, obviously we all wear rose-tinted glasses because when you look at the data, we are overwhelmingly more positive about uh, in many of the areas of the findings, but I, I hardly concur with Stephen's finding that essentially there is a convergence of views uh, from the different stakeholders and what unites us uh, is much, much stronger and clearer than uh, the differences. And interestingly too, I think a lot of the findings uh, uh, are corroborated or corroborate uh, the OECD DAC review uh, that was done last year about the Australian Aid Program too, which broadly found uh, that it is an effective aid program and it was fit for purpose for um, the scale-up that we're now not going to have. The, uh, so this, this alignment, I think, provides a very uh, positive uh, ground for stronger collaboration and partnerships uh, across NGOs, contractors, academia, working with the new government uh, on the issues of aid effectiveness. Although part of me says, yes, we're right, we need to work on uh, aid reform. Another part of me has a sense of great weariness uh, when I think about perpetual aid reform and Lenin's continuous revolution. Um, I think many of us would feel that uh, the last few years have been um, post the aid effectiveness review 
uh, a, a bit of a frenzy of putting in new policies and procedures and trying to deal with those and risk input into them. Um, and now we're embarking on another phase of change again with the new government. So, <clears throat> to turning to the issues of strategic clarity, um, clearly the aid effectiveness review and the subsequent uh, CAPF, the Comprehensive Aid Policy Framework, for all of the, the um, you know, perhaps the, the, the clumsiness of some of that, that, that acronym, um, it did give a, a clear strategic direction, uh, the single focus on uh, helping people overcome poverty, I think was very welcome and situated national interests below that purpose. And I guess this was a big tick in the OECD's review uh, uh, when they looked at the Australian Aid Program. And now I think the challenge is that the, with the CAPF gone, uh, what we know is that we do need a clear statement about uh, aid policy and aid direction. And the OECD's uh, work from some years ago on effective aid management points that all effective aid programs have a, a, a higher level statement of purpose and a, a policy framework under it. And I'm not sure that we've got that at this moment. Uh, I think uh, what we've got is um, some headlines, but the text has yet to be filled in. And I, I think we need to work with the government around the new benchmarks and actually fleshing out uh, what the national interest focus, uh, economic growth actually looks like in reality. Um, interestingly, I think uh, Alexander Downer in the White Paper in 2006 actually did give some quite clear pointers about how uh, the precursors for economic growth around having a healthy workforce, uh, having um, an educated population are actually necessary to get precursors in many cases to get uh, sustainable economic growth. And I think we may be going back and finding some of that information, dusting it off and uh, giving it back to the, the new government so they can put some flesh on the bones. Uh, I think it's particularly apparent around the tension of poverty alleviation and economic growth. Um, the, the stakeholders clearly felt that the strategic commercial objectives combined uh, carry a greater weight in the aid program than the goal of reducing poverty, and yet our ideal was a program that uh, would be focused on reducing poverty. And so, and particularly it's strong in our sector with NGOs. So I think there's a tension with this, with the new government's emphasis on economic diplomacy and promoting Australia's national interests. I, I totally agree with the survey's findings that national interest, I, I don't think any of us can say that under Kevin Rudd, the, the pursuit of the Security Council and the, the, um, uh, the expansion of the aid program uh, wasn't uh, a national interest strategic objective. And I think there's basically a continuity there. Uh, it's nothing new, but in recent Senate estimates, there was some nuancing going on uh, from officials to say Australia's interests were to be seen both international economic growth and poverty reduction. But again, there wasn't much flesh on the bones of that. So obviously economic development is a critically important uh, aspect of uh, the main contributor to human development and an important aspect of aid. But I think we are actually not very clear how aid for trade uh, might actually be applied in Western Province of PNG, which is a very poor part of Papua New Guinea, for example. Um, I think we, we really need to take up the World Bank's challenge to target uh, our aid programs and economic growth policies to the bottom 40% that are, are being bypassed uh, from the benefits of uh, economic growth in many countries. So um, really it's the preconditions that we need to look at. Secondly, transparency 
Um, obviously a very high score and big achievement with uh, the adoption of the International Aid Transparency Initiative uh, by Australia, uh, which we were joining with 188 uh, countries and organisations to have that sort of comparator, and I think there was an enormous effort made. But if you look at the new aid program on the DFAP website, it's, uh, it's in a sorry state. There's been a, a vast amount of information disappear, and I think the litmus test will be next week uh, after the, the MIEFO statement by the Treasurer where we, we, we start to want to get the details of where the $653 million worth of pre-election pre announced cuts uh, fall. Um, we did do great work on that transparency charter and the website, but even last year when the, the diversion occurred of $375 million, it actually took about three months to get the data out and it went up in dribs and drabs all across the website. There was no consolidated picture of where those cuts were coming from or diversions to uh, fund asylum seekers. Uh, in Australia. So I think that's an issue that we really need to hone on because it's a strength, but it could be, at the moment, it looks like an apparent weakness. Regarding communication and engagement, I, I think uh, this comes up against risk aversion, the other finding of the report, that the previous government uh, made a, a valiant start in communicating out to the public the purpose of Australian aid. I think in a policy setting, uh, the CAPF, uh, gave us that strategic focus and that was well communicated, but actually risk aversion took over after a few years because of political tax and negative tabloid media. Uh, uh, and so I, I think the public are actually quite confused about what the official aid program uh, does and that start, stands in stark contrast to what NGOs do where there's generally high sort of levels of understanding and brand recognition. And a recent poll, a very recent poll, which actually hasn't come out yet, uh, but I can share the data. There's some interesting findings about public attitudes towards aid, though, that does sort of align with some of the findings in the review and point to where the government has, has said it wants to work. Um, public survey, investing in overseas aid is important to Australia's national reputation. 65% totally agree. Overseas aid is a good way to strengthen our relationships with our closest developing country neighbours. 66% agree. As a wealthy nation, we should help be, a, be about helping to get people out of poverty in developing countries. 62% agree. And then, so it's sort of about two-thirds on average are in favour of those, those, uh, those findings, which actually lend their weight to where the government is going around communicating the national interest argument uh, for, for giving aid. A bit more problematically, the, the, the question, even if some in Australia are doing it tough, we still have an obligation to assist poor people to get out of poverty in developing countries. 57% uh, agree and 36% disagree. So I, I think um, the government is, the previous government actually by the end was missing in action on communicating out to the public. There, there was lots of reports on individual aspects of the aid program, but the development education aspect, I think, um, they, they were battening down the hatch, hatch, hatches on risk management and we, we lost a chance to communicate to the public. And there's an opportunity for the new government now. Um, finally, uh, just around some of the findings around the internal management. Well, Stephen's given you the overview around um, the, the, the churn in staff, the, um, the micromanagement. Um, just to point out to this, uh, this new capability review that the Public Service Commission has done of uh, DFAT. I think there's some interesting findings here and I just want to mention some of them. So, um, and I'm going to focus on some of the negative ones rather than the positive ones because overall the review found that DFAT is a very, very capable and talented uh, organisation or has many talented people in it. 
Uh, but uh, some findings. DFAT still faces difficulties in clearly articulating to outsiders what it does and adequately measuring the outcomes of its activities. Um, it should think of its goals in broader terms that comprehend the full range of the government's interests. Uh, so I think that's an opportunity around the, the development and aid piece. In view of its own staff and others, DFAT's very effective at advocacy and delivering that strategic thinking. And so actually it's good at rapid decision making. Uh, responding to quick, uh, you know, to, to the external environment, and that could be of assistance with uh, the, the with the merger of the, the development program. Uh, if there is a, a sense that decision making has been slow there, uh, if, according to this survey. Um, however, um, many DFAT officers speak about the department's culture as risk adverse, um, overregulation, heavy compliance requirements, reluctance to take decisions, and cultural conservatism. So if we do this survey again next year, I wonder what we'll find. Um, as resource pressures mount, new Nibans will be on DFAT services to grow. Well, we've seen that with the merger. And innovation will be more necessary in all of the department's activities. So that gives us some hope. However, uh, on their people, you know, definitely attracting high quality people, but uh, they, they have more than frequent churn, uh, particularly in Canberra-based positions. So again, can we overcome this problem that we've identified in this survey, given that culture and DFAT? Um, interestingly, it, the, the, the review found that DFAT would find it easier to develop uh, new capabilities if it had more effective and professional system of workforce planning. And I just wonder if that's um, an interesting finding, given the, the, the merger going on at the moment and how it might be transpiring. And finally, and perhaps Interestingly, as an opportunity, uh, it says, like most foreign ministries, DFAT's corporate culture is uncomfortable with long-term planning. Well, I think the aid program has actually been very good at long-term planning. Not, maybe not perfect, but I think we think it's effective. Uh, certainly, there's a big push on country strategies in the last few years to get them out. And I think, you know, I think there's going to be real opportunities and synergies, potentially, to have some of the strengths of the uh, former AusAid culture and ways of operating uh, augment uh, some of the areas where the DFAT culture has been lacking and vice versa. Uh, but remains to be seen, and that's why we'll look to you, Stephen and Jonathan, to let us know next year. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. And finally, if I could invite Mel Dunn, the Chair of the International Development Contractors, to um, give the final presentation. Good evening, everybody. I think for those who've seen the report, this for me is well past glass half full, probably even getting closer to full. And I think those who've read the report when I'm referring to as the contractor community, we tend to be a little more negative, as has been written in the report. So I guess what I'd like to just talk through is from the IDC's eyes, um, why we see things that might be slightly illuminating us. If you're wondering why I'm looking after my glasses, I'm still getting used to how to read and see you at the same time. So I want to just, uh, two sides, is look at what illuminates us from um, our perspective, but then also what I think are the opportunities that come out from that. But I think what might be useful just to start is maybe just to orient, you know, very briefly about, you know, the IDC and why, why we might see things the way we do. So the IDC was formed in the late 1990s and at that time a lot of the engagement with the Australian aid program was very much about you know, the contracting type conversation of working with the managing contractor community. 
The data varies, but it would be reasonably accurate, I think, to suggest that the uh, IDC members historically have managed upwards of 20% of the Australian aid budget over time. But our membership is not homogenous. We have large multinational companies, many some employ over 50,000 people. We have small, medium enterprises, niche operators. Some are individuals and some are also from academia. But where we're quite similar is that we're all private sector implementing partners and we're some of the most highly scrutinised aid stakeholders in the program. Now, I actually think that's good and I celebrate that. But at the same time, we're a very highly experienced group of development professionals, more than just contract managers, more than just project managers. And I think it is possible that maybe some of that hasn't been as harnessed as well as it could have been. And so maybe that isn't, isn't as good. And I guess it's those two dimensions that really is how we've looked at this survey. I think what's exciting, though, is that, you know, the, the fact that, as reported, you know, there's so much more that unites us than divides us, and I think that is tremendous. And I think it's... I've probably believed that um, forever, but I think so often we see information out in the public arena that makes us question that. So I'm, I'm very excited to see that, and I think that that's something that we should focus on moving into the future. Less surprising is we all have vested interests. Who would have thought, hey? So that's um, quite interesting. I think that there's one statistic that was early presented by uh, Stephen that I think is just worth just re replaying again, and I think the very high response rate, and I think from across all of the, the target groups, I think it shows a genuine interest in the program. And I do want to highlight from our, our members, you know, 84% response rate. The only thing that surprises me there is I thought it might have been 100. And I guess, you know, at times, you know, we're presented as however we may be interpreted, but the reality is there's a very interested group of people there, and I, I think that this is a, a group of people who are heavily invested in the program and want to actively contribute and care about the quality and effectiveness of the program. So let's just get the elephant out in the room. It wasn't presented by Stephen or by Mark, so I'm going to share it, and I quote, the least popular choice was for more aid to contractors among NGOs. So, if you want to know the number, that was 2%. Was, um, <laughs> but, you know, but what is that telling us? And I guess you, people don't know what we're doing. Uh, there's misconceptions about the value in what we do. We don't do a good enough job in letting community know what, in fact, we do do and how well we do contribute. I actually don't know, but I guess it's probably a, a combination of all of those things. And I think we've got a responsibility and probably to blame in some respect, both as the IDC and as industry, for not sharing that message. I think there's opportunity that we can talk to later about that. What we really enjoyed about the survey was its focus on effectiveness and particularly the challenges and I think the data provides a timely reminder that there's still a bit more that could be done. Two of the challenges that uh, Professor Howells talked to and defined back in the effectiveness review about the feedback loop and high knowledge burden which he has talked to are the two things that we'd really like to just draw on a little bit more here. The definition about the feedback loop included the willingness to take risk, to make more timely decisions, to have realistic expectations. And the data tells us that there's more to do there, but in fact the report is telling us that the IDC members are the ones who are highly pessimistic. Of the three, of the three attributes just mentioned, the realism of expectations, appropriate attitude to risk and quick decision making, our members rated everything as a fail. In fairness, so did everybody, um, except the NGOs who gave a bare pass to expectations. But what, what the survey is showing is that our members are certainly critical. So why might this be the case? 
The data tells us that more than 90% of contractor respondents confirm that all or the majority of activity funding comes from the Australian aid programs. Might that be a reason? Or is it that 85% of contractor funding is earmarked, hence creating a level of reduced flexibility impacting both decision-making and risk management practice? It might be, but I think that's a bit structural. Could it also possibly be behavioural? Contractor responses are again much more critical of micromanagement than any other respondent. And one can naturally expect that will impact on decision-making and risk aversion. Other respondents rate the use of partnership as a pass, even if barely, whereas a contractor suggests this attribute is below par. So could a different approach with engaging with contractors in a more effective partnership approach, where appropriate, create a different structural and behavioural response? And that's where we're coming from. We think that's a conversation worth continuing. The second aid effectively challenged the knowledge burden, I think, benefits most from the survey. I think it's timeliness and the data, because it's, it's the one area that I think rated most poorly across the whole, whole findings. There's a quote in the definition for this that I'd just like to share, and it is, working through effective partnerships, bracket, without micromanagement, with specialised capabilities. So at the time of the survey, turnover was considered a significant challenge, and in light of the changes for the recent elections, and with utmost respect to any who may be impacted, one can only imagine that any organisational change that creates additional turnover is not going to address that challenge. So there's been much discussion about that point, but I guess I really encourage uh, DFAT to you know, take a look at the data and, and see what is inside there to see how that might help thinking and planning for the future. But out of all of this, I think there are a whole lot of possibilities. I think that the data is the data. I don't think we should be overly judgmental and certainly not overly negative. I think we should celebrate that we've got this rich information and see what we can do with it to help inform us all as invested and interested aid stakeholders. So I want to focus on where the possibility exists and it really sits around one piece of glue and for me it's partnership. In, in what I'll term the modern era of the IDC, since 2010 we've been focused purposely on ensuring we can do all to contribute to doing better development. I think there's been some very positive steps in engaging deeper with the then AusAid, which, which is continuing, but I still think there's a bit more to be done. Addressing the challenge of knowledge burden and the assumed risk of intellectual property loss from workforce changes. Industry is still here. Industry has experience. Industry is not just a collection of project and contract managers. We're development professionals with learning and experience that we want to invest back in the program. So could we harness this better and maybe that addresses some of the risk challenges? Might a more intellectual dialogue recognise that the shared values amongst us all and erode the perceived practice of micromanagement? Might a partnership approach mitigate some of the issues associated with staff turnover or recognising we too have intellectual property that could be of value to the aid program? So we think the role of the private sector is fundamental to work towards true sustainability of development efforts and becoming increasingly true with changes in aid delivery globally, reducing donor budget donor budgets, the private sector has far more than it can do and a far greater role it must play. So we think as an IDC we're in a reasonably unique position you know, where we are traditional development implementing partners, we're also private sector, many are major employees in our own right, we speak the language of industry and we seek to bring these dual experiences to achieve better development outcomes for all. So I fully support the findings of the, of the, uh, the survey, you know, we have got a great A program, I'm very proud as an Australian to be part of it, and equally I agree that there's so much more that can be done. The IDC will continue to be a positive and active voice for the program. We want to make sure that 
we can do things better together. And I think that the, the comment that Stephen makes about we need to get heard, get more on the policy agenda, I think is so important. And my sense is that fragmented groups are not going to achieve that. You know, a collective voice is going to be so much more powerful. And the survey's telling us that we're more aligned and more together. And so, as I spoke to Mark earlier, I think, you know, we had we have talked in the past about what else can Ackford and the IDC do together to you know, better collaborate because we do see things so much more similarly and Mark, I, I suggest we need to pick that conversation back up. But just to close, there was an opportunity I left hanging. From my perspective, nothing else comes out of this survey. I hope we all have a greater sense that we're in this together, that we have a reasonably united view of what we do and what is important and that none of us are the solution for everything but together we might generate better solutions. Thank you. Thanks, Mel. Now, can I ask our speakers just to come up front? And we have about 20 minutes for questions, comments, um, general discussion. In asking your question, if you could just say where you're from, that would be most helpful. And I think we're kicking off here. Hey, thank you for the question. Yep. Okay. Uh, I'm just wondering, uh, I just said to you. What's your name? Oh, Rudy Kuba from Amsterdam uh, International, and also Australian Municipal Peace Council as well. Uh, my question is to Stephen, not related to the result of this survey, how representative it, it is actually, uh, that, that you can say that it can, it can be actually fair, but. Uh, I mean, I mean, strong enough to be recommended to be really uh, read by defect at the moment. Okay, yeah. And, and, and also, the second question related to the uh, strategic interests of Australia, commercial interests of Australia. And people, people like to see that we are going, uh, we are, we, people are moving more to the poverty reduction rather than to the other factors. But defect is working with uh, policy, politics. Uh, uh, diplomacy, commercial, because you're talking about trade there as well, foreign, foreign, foreign relationship. So it seems to me that they are actually not really coming in the same direction. So how do you, how do you uh, explain that to, if you want really to push this actually as an input for effect? Thank you. Yeah, well, on the first question, how representative is it? Yeah, so I think for the uh, NGOs and the IDC, it's very representative because we took all of them, right? well, all the major NGOs and a representative sample of smaller NGOs. And uh, the contractors, we took all of them, even some that aren't members of IDC, but who are significant uh, contractors for the Australian Aid Program. And then we had a very good response rate. So I think for these two groups, uh, very representative. Uh, for the other groups, yeah, that's what I was saying, less so, right? Because it's self-selected. And so, you know, you can never have as much confidence in a self-selected sample as, as in one where you, you've selected it yourself, right? Um, and that's, that's the way it is. Uh, maybe in the future we'll have the resources to get a, uh, a, a sampling frame for the other stakeholder groups, but uh, we still feel that as 200 individuals, uh, uh, my own sense is they are pretty representative. I would be pretty surprised that if you went out and sampled uh, academics or sampled uh, Australian government officials, or sampled um, other groups that um, you get a very different result. I mean, it's possible, but I would be surprised just because their results are quite similar in those areas to, to ones of these two groups where we know they're representative. And where they're different, we can understand why they're different. So 
Uh, yeah, that's the answer. The first two groups, very representative. The uh, self-select group, less so, but still a value. And uh, yeah, second question, yeah, that's right. So I think uh, you're right. I mean, there is a, we put this in the report, and I couldn't uh, cover everything in the presentation, but there is a tension. I think the aid community, uh, as we surveyed it, would like to see poverty reduction given a greater weight. Whereas the government, if it signaled anything, it may have signaled, it wants to give it a lesser weight. And that's a fundamental tension, and I think it's, uh, you know, I put myself in this category as well. I think Asia should mainly be about poverty reduction. And, you know, those who believe that should make their voices heard as a countervailing uh, factor. But, so that's one point you can draw from that analysis. But the other point is that, you know, if you think that national interest is important, well, you know, don't think that it's not already being taken seriously by the aid program, because the experts, you know, universally agree it is taken pretty seriously already. So those in DFAT may not need to change it much, right, if they want to use the aid program to advance national interest, because that's already how it's being used. Thank you. Uh, my name is Terry Hall from a ANU. I'd like to ask a question about the, the questions on churning of staff, which I think most people in this room uh, would agree with, uh, as opposed to the quality of the staff the training, the, the sorts of qualifications that they have going into the aid program. It strikes me that the sort of person you want running the aid program is not necessarily trained in international relations. And I would also think that the sort of person you would want would have language abilities and have experience in developing countries. Uh, I'm wondering whether the survey um, had any insight into people's evaluation of the quality of the aid personnel? Yeah, well, we did ask about, so one of those 17 was, uh, we called it staff expertise. And um, it was one of those that got an average score of um, uh, yeah, 2.6. So it was in the kind of weakness category, but it didn't stand out. And that's why, I guess, because those two really stood out. Um, so... I think, uh, I mean, I think Oz, you know, there's been a massive recruitment of staff and, and a lot of experts have been brought into the organisation. So I, I think everyone would agree, uh, and we've got a few comments on this, that uh, that's an area where uh, there's been improvement. But I guess, I mean, the other thing is, you know, if you bring in a lot of staff, then they're not going to have that kind of experience uh, that you're suggesting. So it maybe it cuts both ways. But yeah, the findings are there uh, on staff expertise. Uh, Mark, yes. did you... I'm just wondering, also stated out of the aid effectiveness review uh, and uh, the panel that you were on, there was some discussion about the different needs of having a generic public service skill, uh, we can turn your hand to any, anything, many things, and, and having the specialist development knowledge. And uh, it seems to me that I'm not quite sure how that was resolved. Uh, by the time that this survey was done, but it seems to me it's been challenged again because now there'll be a tension and reconciling the, uh, the diplomacy skill set, the advocacy skills that the diplomats have with more the longer term planning, evaluation skills, programming skills that the, uh, the, uh, the development folk have. Thank you. Uh, I'm Salva. I'm one of ANU alumnus. And uh, uh, thank you so much for the nice presentation. It was really informative. 
uh, from the survey, it seems that there's really lots of work to be done in the aid sector in Australia. And also we see that, uh, as we see currently, uh, the current government, Australian government really doesn't give priority to um, aid agenda. There are cuts coming and arguably, arguably there's amount of aid money going into asylum seeker um, activities. Some people say it shouldn't be. It should Apart from that, anyway, so my question is that um, because there, what, if the academia, the NGOs, and the contractors, are they going to come together and advocate and lobby for a comprehensive and broad-based uh, aid reform, and based on the findings of the survey, uh, push the government to prioritize, um, uh, to, to give priority to the current aid um, sector issues um, or uh, and, and really push uh, for the for the implications to be to be taken seriously by the government so are these three bodies going to in the near future come together and take some really serious um, action steps to make sure that what we uh, what the recommendations are uh, of the survey are going to be um, somehow achieved in okay. the future thank you just recognising the number of people who want to ask questions, and we have about 15 minutes, we'll take a few in a group. If you can keep them short, and we'll do just the three here and then answer, and we'll do three more. So, yep. Thank you, Professor Hurst, for, in spite of current time, it's hard for each program, but giving positive persuasion for aid assistance in the developing countries. Uh, you told about sectoral reform and suggested corporate program and poverty reduction, okay? In, suppose the developing countries like Bangladesh in South Asian zone, I am contacting the seed fund of the central banking fund. This is the 6,000 million US dollar and 10% of total donable fund is disbursing for women. But a lot of donors fund are connecting in our country, the World Bank ADB, not giving any aid assistance to women entrepreneurs fund. So, could we have any plan to give particularly the sectoral reform for women entrepreneurs because particularly uh, highlighting the gender issue. As we have shown in our country that credit given to female has a positive impact rather than male person, the microcredit, 97% of their recovery rate. Thank you. And Di, did you have a question? Yes. Okay. I just wanted to ask Stephen, sorry, Di Barr from the URS um, International Development. I just wanted to ask Stephen about the um, self-selecting participants and the government officials. Mm. Did you have any idea how many were actually from the aid sector? Um, and also, what was the reason why AusAid, as it was, decided not to participate? Mm. Right. We'll just take those three and then. Okay. Well, I'm only the other first ones are my colleagues um, about how we're going to take this forward. Comrades. Um, <laughs> we will go forward. I think there's actually a lot that we crack to together because I think uh, putting, as I said, putting some flesh on the, the, the skeleton of uh, the government's directions is actually vitally important. And I think we, we're all agreed around having the poverty alleviation, alleviation focus beefed up uh, in the economic development uh, headline that the government has put out there. Um, and then there's, there's some critical things that have been achieved over the last few years, such as transparency. So we, we, we don't just see uh, through um, attention to being elsewhere, uh, that to be neglected and to fall away. 
so those achievements that the, the survey um, noted, I think, um, put into sort of key planning and drawing on some of those. Uh, I would also make a comment that Julie Bishop has said in regards to asylum seekers that she doesn't support the diversion of around 75 million to uh, domestic use of asylum seekers, uh, you know, asylum seekers in Australia. So um, uh, we'll work with one her on that. Um, and she may have some tension as well. Um, I think she is a, a proponent of aid to Eastern Seaboard Africa, um, but not necessarily her colleagues. So um, some of the findings, I think maybe we could tease them out a bit more around um, with some of us that feel that there should be more assistance to Sub-Saharan Africa, but certainly for the NGO sector. Um, a third of the funding that we raise, the, the, the 1.4 billion, um, goes to programs in Africa, so it's where the public very much see the face of uh, human poverty and do something about it. So again, it comes back to something about how the official aid program seeks to communicate with the public, and I think, again, uh, at the moment, missing an action, it's an opportunity for the government. So just to, on, on the coming together, I think, you know, how do we find coming together? So one possibility is we hold hands, go bang on the door together. The other possibility is we're sending similar messages often regularly and I guess what encourages me is I think we need to hold hands a bit more but what encourages me from this process is I think we're probably having some of the very similar conversations with different similar groups so I think that is useful we could do more of that but I guess also I'd, I'd, I'd just like to put it out there that there's another you know part of this I think we shouldn't ignore the quality of the individuals within the aid program under what they were labeled in the DFAT Aussie that no, I think that we don't want to have the us and them type conversation, you know, so we should be working together. I think that for me is the strongest message, and so I think there is more and more appetite for that from all quarters to ethically and appropriately focus on doing good development. Mm -hmm. Just, just to, to add, because when I heard of the survey, I really thought that a majority, the majority of the respondents would be from government, from Tivad or Mazet, but I don't see that. Yeah, I think so there are some issues within so, the organisation. So my feeling yeah. is that or what I'm really afraid of is that this really con um, important discussion would, would there would be a gap between the group who's discussing all this and the, 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 the policymakers and those who have the power to solve these problems and implement their recommendations are not really caring and hearing. So there's a gap, and I'm, I'm kind of worried how that should be reduced. So, scientists there, my gut feeling is that I reckon that ODAE or DFAT, whatever you call them, are probably unsurprised and we'd probably respond not too dissimilar in many of those things. Yeah, so yeah, we had, um, yeah, because we, we could have got a sampling frame uh, for Aussie, obviously, but uh, they declined to participate, and uh, you can argue both ways. If you look at other stakeholder surveys, you do find, actually, government staff participating. Uh, on the other hand, I can understand, you know, the findings come out, and Aussie thinks the aid program terrible, or it could be politically embarrassing. So they declined to participate, but of course, there's nothing to uh, stop Aussie staff participating as a, in the second phase, and uh, yeah, we didn't give an Aussie category because, given you know, we didn't want to press the point. But yeah, 54 government officials participated, and uh, three quarters of them said they were directly engaged with the aid program. So presumably, they were either in Aussie or they were in another, like in Treasury, delivering aid. Uh, and it's certainly true; their views very similar, except for you know one or two issues like staff expertise. You know, you understand, right? They've got a higher view. But generally, you don't find uh, big differences uh, between government officials. I totally agree it's important, like it's not us against them uh, at all. And um, I mean, we invited uh, government to participate today, uh, but 
there are major changes underway. I understand why they didn't, but we'll certainly be taking this, you know, both to the Parliament and to the political leadership and trying to have a dialogue uh, around this. And yeah, the, these are the views. To the extent that they're critics, they are very sympathetic critics. Uh, so you should certainly uh, not, not accept everything they say, but certainly listen to them and have a cooperative dialogue. And just on uh, economic development, you know, microfinance, I mean, that's one thing the government wants to do. And, you know, I just, I get the sense from this that um, there's a fair bit of sympathy with that, actually, among stakeholders. It was surprising, right? And um, so I don't see that as a kind of major uh, problem if the government wants to push it in that way. I just think it's not the big chart. The big uh, picture, the big issue is this, uh, these unfinished, the unfinished reform agenda. And, you know, I think we have to look at aid like other areas where you do need ongoing reform, right? You've got to keep working on it uh, to get an uh, effective aid program. And, uh, you know, the Minister has uh, expressed a commitment to aid effectiveness. I think we should, we should work, take that as a starting point. Great. Um, thank you. My name is Corinne Tompkinson. I'm an ex-Defense ex officer. And my question is directed uh, towards Stephen. Um, uh, a very interesting survey, thank you. But um, one of the challenges I see with the survey of this nature is that you're effectively surveying <coughs> all the entities who are responsible for implementing the aid program. So they are, in effect, assessing themselves and their, and their counterparts. Um, uh, so my question is, have you given any consideration to the potential for assess assessing or setting the views of the recipients, and not just at government level, because that's politically problematic, but at non-government level, business level, academic level, and so on, and the recipient government, because that to me was the very major missing part of this, what the recipients actually think is working for them. It's not just about what, how, we, how well we think we've done. Correct. Any final questions? Very good one. Yeah, well, that was a uh, kind of classic criticism when we talked about the survey. It was like, well, you know, why, why would you survey these vested interests? You know, what we're interested in, either what the Australian taxpayer thinks because they're paying for it, or what the uh, poor people in developing countries think because they're the ones who are meant to be benefiting uh, from it. But, you know, the problem with that is, well, do they have the information? Right? Do they know? Uh, what is an aid-funded program, and, um, you know, often they don't. So I think on an individual project level, yes, you want to go, obviously, ask beneficiaries, but how you would do this, how you would assess, uh, you know, Papua New Guineans uh, on their views. I'm sure they have views on Australian aid, but whether they're well-informed views, uh, I don't know. But anyway, I'm all, I'm all in favour of getting the views of beneficiaries. I'm not against that. I just think it's also very useful, as you said, to ask the people that the government is entrusting with billions of dollars. Ask them, you know, what, what do you think of the strengths? What do you think is the problem? And I think that itself is valuable. So I'd see this, you know, survey, obviously it's not the complete answer, uh, complete set of views, but it's an important part of the puzzle. Just, just on that, I think, um, I mean, in the, if you really read the report, you'll see that uh, Stephen and Jonathan reference uh, various uh, social surveys in India and elsewhere where publics have been testing government performance and accountability in key areas of delivery of education and water supply and so on. And so that's inspiration. And I, I think uh, in addition to asking uh, DFAT to participate in this survey next, uh, next year, um, asking them to collaborate in a pilot and in, in one, one or two countries around some specific programs where perhaps 
it's more optimal that there is some public and community awareness of the Australian uh, involvement, uh, rail involvement, that, that would be very fertile. I mean, the government already does this with Ramsey and the Solomon Jet, so uh, it's not that it's it's untried territory. So I think I think it could be done if the uh, DFAT and the government uh, are interested in innovation and not can overcome uh, the, the risk aversion that they may feel on an initial approach around this idea, because I think it could be very fertile ground. And for us, uh, speaking to the NGO community, it's a critical benchmark of performance of the Australian Aid Program is getting that direct feedback from the publics about how they're feeling their lives are improving as a result of the interventions that we're making. So uh, that would be something that we will be uh, taking to the government as part of their fleshing out their principles about how they deliberate. So I hope, uh, I hope uh, the government will be responsive. I think there was the Ramsey survey as well. Um for a number of years, it was an interesting model. ANU conducted from OZ. Yeah. So I think that brings us to the end of a very interesting conversation. Thank you to the audience for your questions, um, as well as our panel, if you could just join me again in thanking all three of You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.